Morning, everybody. Man, I'm, I'm just super filled with gratitude with Thanksgiving this morning. Um, really grateful for an amazing worship team, worship pastor and Tyson, who, who just kind of bring us before the throne of grace every Sunday. So this being Thanksgiving, can we just give a little encouragement to them? Don't expect this routinely. This is a Thanksgiving only kind of a thing. Don't expect it until next year. Um, but no, in general, I've, I'm just filled with gratitude this morning. I'm, I, I, the, one of the things that I'm kind of overwhelming with gratitude for this morning is that I get to lead in this place where, where I, there's a, a church that are so longing to live for Jesus and, and, and figure out and strive to live in your context for Jesus, what it looks like for Jesus to be the center of your marriages, what it looks like for Jesus to be the center of your parenting, what it looks like for Jesus to be the center of your colleague work, what it means students to bring Jesus with you to your classes, to live for him. And, and all through society and your neighborhoods, I'm just... You love Jesus, and I, I couldn't ask for a, a more wonderful church to get to be a part of leading. We've been doing a series this fall called Doubt, which is, is looking at those niggling doubts of those inside the church and outside of the church when it comes to faith, those niggling doubts. Can it be true because of this, 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 this? We've been trying to address those. We've been working off some polling that was done, and we we're just addressing the top six that are common in, in North America, really, and uh, regarding the church and Christianity. And I just thought in the last couple of weeks, as I went and preached at other campuses and just hung out last week, which was awesome, um, when, I, when I heard their contributions, Paul Chamberlain from Trinity Western University uh, wrestling with this question, like, doesn't science refute too much of the Bible? And I thought he helped us work through that, think through that so, so brilliantly. And I just also want to say this. If I'd written as many books as Paul Chamberlain has, I'd try and sell them at the beginning of my sermons as well, okay? And then last week, last week, Pastor Chris Battle, I just love when you guys get to hang out with Chris Battle because we have fun with him on our team and he's just so the man for... Um, for that little Lake Iraq church plant. He's the campus pastor there. We've got this amazing base team from our church who are a part of, of starting this plant and just, man, just so, so good. And I thought his contribution to Isn't Christianity Just Another Fairy Tale was exceptional. So exceptional, I didn't wanna be here today. I didn't wanna follow him up. So good, I'm just grateful for him. And I've told him this and I wanna tell it to you. There is not a man I respect and love in the world more than Chris Battle who drinks out of a sippy cup. And he knows, and he knows this. And so I'm really grateful for those men, for their godliness, their contributions into the series. Now listen, this is the part of the sermon where I grab your attention with a story that has just the right amount of humor, right? But it also perfectly segues into the topic we're going to talk about all morning. This is that part. But I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not doing that. Instead, I just want to begin with this statement. There is a un, an undeniable dark side to church history. An undeniable dark side to church history. Crusades, inquisitions, burnings, drownings, enslavings, imprisonings, lynchings, homophobia, abuse, killings. Right? All the Thanksgiving themes. G.K. Chesterton, 20th century British Christian philosopher, put it this way, 
I do believe in Christianity. And my impression is that a system must be divine which has survived so much insane mismanagement. And I totally agree with him. I, I totally agree with him. So if you have a Bible, um, why don't you turn it to 2 Samuel? It's sort of near the beginning of the Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12 in a moment. But I just want to clarify what we're doing this morning right out of the gate. Where the sermon I did a few weeks ago on hypocrisy shook down on more of an individual level. Oh, the hypocrisy of Christians. This sermon's emphasis lies at the systemic level. Right? The historical record of the church. And so with that in mind... And just before we read 2 Samuel 12, I just want you to get up to speed on, on what happens in 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, it's about King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And God had done some incredible things through David because he was a man full of faith, right? He went and defeated a giant and all that kind of stuff, just really godly, really faithful, worshiped God sincerely. But then we read in 2 Samuel 11 that he breaks a number of the Ten Commandments. He starts by breaking the Tenth Commandment, which is not to covet, and he covets another man's wife. And then he breaks the Seventh Commandment by committing adultery with her, and then he breaks the Sixth Commandment by having her husband murdered. And then where we're going to read this morning in chapter 12, a prophet named Nathan shows up. And, and Nathan is a prophet over the course of some of David's reign. He kind of enters here and he lingers on through Samuel, uh, or, or sorry, uh, Solomon's, King Solomon's reign, David's son. And here's what he shows up to say to David in 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels, it's getting weird, and drink from his cup, getting weirder, and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him, little excessive. But I actually want you to know something's going on. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've been told when, when Nathan is saying daughter in the original language, that word is bath. Nathan's coming and he's telling a story that's going to take a turn and he's already giving a little bit of, because why? David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then it continues on. Now, Nathan tells, keeps telling the story. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's a powerful text. King David, the king of Israel, the king of God's special people, a good king, a man after God's own heart, is the man, the unjust man. This is the very first thing we need to see in the text. It's about injustice and the reality that David sinned. 
In the aftermath of this whole scenario, David penned Psalm 51. I love Psalm 51. I have read it in the first person many, many times. And in light of what transpired here and this word from Nathan to David, David penned this in verse 5 of Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here's what David is saying. He's coming to grips with the fact that he sinned. And you know what he's realizing? You know what he's stating? It's in my blood. You ever felt this before? Confronted with your own sin, and you're like, it's in me. It is in me, right? These first parents of ours, Adam and Eve, we inherited from them sin, all of us. Toddlers are adorable, no? Toddlers are adorable. Some of their first words are consistently no and mine. Why? Because they're little adorable sinners. That's why. See, our nature is an inclination to explain our sin away. Oh, it was just a moment. That was a moment of weakness. I'm a good person. That was a moment of weakness. That's not me. You ever heard public apologies before? That wasn't me. That was out of character with me. No, 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 no. It's in your blood. I'm a good guy. No, you're not. Martin Scorsese, the famous director, wrote, deep down you want to think that people are really good But the reality outweighs that. So the first thing we need to say about this topic is this. Have horrible injustices been done throughout history in the name of Christianity? Yes. That's where we start. We need to to recognize that. The answer is yes. David, this king, we're talking systemic level, government, political leader, power, sinning, inflicting harm on others. And yet this king of Israel really was a representative of God. And the church, every time they sin, are do so as these representatives of God. And so as we look back at church history, and maybe you have friends, family, neighbors who have made comments like this to you, I want to set the table by just telling you, you know this, airports around the world, thousands of planes take off and land every day. You don't really hear about it. What do you hear about? You hear about the, the few flights that crash, right? And so when it said church history... There are usually like four, in our, context, in our kind of the Western world, there are usually like four things that come up routinely, four plane crashes, if you will. And they are the Crusades, the Inquisition, the witch trials, and child abuse. Happy Thanksgiving. Here we go. Um, to present a full picture of the Crusades, uh, like really the all was going on during the Crusades would take a really long time. It's actually very complex. And so at the risk of oversimplifying it, I'm sure some of us will talk in the foyer later and you'll tell me about another aspect and another thing that was going on. And yes, 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 I've read it too. But I'm just trying to summarize what took place. The Crusades were military expeditions made by Europeans to recover holy lands from Muslims in the 11th to 13th centuries. In some regards, it was a faith movement, but in many regards, it was a geopolitical blend of church and state. 
we really can look at much of what happened in the Crusades and honestly say it was not about the advancement of the kingdom of God. It was not about the the conversion of souls to Christianity. There may have been crosses on the shields of the Crusaders as they killed Muslims, but it was, it was religiously complicated, politically motivated, and it was disguised in some sort of Christendom that the majority of the time looked nothing like Christ. At the same time, unlike popular myth, in many cases the battles that were fought were fought defensively to protect Christians from invading Muslim attackers or to reclaim that land that had been lost to Muslim invaders. It's just a part of the history. And so these Catholics and these Muslims, you can understand why it was called They were called the holy wars, right? But unfortunately, there wasn't much holy about them. Jesus famously said, my kingdom's not of this world. Christians must always distinguish between the kingdom of God and and, and the kingdoms ruled by worldly means. And wherever we've gotten that wrong, whenever we've gotten that wrong, it's left a wake of destruction and injustice. It's just a fact. When it comes to the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition is probably most famously known and was a tribunal and an extension of the papal, the Pope Inquisition in the 15th century in Spain that sought to identify heretics and bring them to justice. You must pronounce faith in Jesus. You're a Muslim, you're a Jew, you need to be a Christian. And so they would, be, they would, they would hold these tribunals and identify people as heretics and they would sometimes even burn them at the stake for it. It's an ugly example of the dangerous mix of church and state when political and power, all of these things are colliding. And Christianity, though, has always thrived as a subversive movement. The institutional, uh, political, all those sorts of things, those have been very complicated, checkered paths. But Christianity, here's the thing about Christianity at the bottom line, it can't be mandated. You can't mandate Christianity to people. Why? Because it's not based on moral adherence and personal achievement. It's faith in what Jesus accomplished for you. You believe it or you don't. You surrender to Christ or you do not. It's an issue of the heart, not some outward moral adherence. So the Crusaders and the Inquisition, these things are unfortunate examples of geopolitical power moves in the name of Christendom. Are they complex? Were there some good motivations that you could argue for and banter about? Yes, absolutely. But we can also step back and say, a lot of this was just atrocious, was just awful and wrong. When it comes to the witch trials, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, fame claimed in the book, the church in in Europe killed 5 million women during the witch trials over four centuries. But that's, you know, a fictitious book. And yet many people read it and they say, did you know that The church killed five million women during the witch trials. But then American academic and author Carl Sagan comes along and essentially says the same thing when he wrote, no one knows how many supposed witches the church killed altogether. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, he said, but he cites no sources. Perhaps five, Carl Sagan. (laughs) Perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions. See, most scholars estimate that 40 to 60,000 people, 20% of them men, were killed during these heinous witch trials. It's still a heinous, horrible, inexcusable number. 
It's also a far cry from the millions of Sagan and Brown. The most famous of these for us as Canadians would be the Salem witch trials, right? Because of our proximity in North America. Um, those took place in Salem, the, the state that I can't pronounce. Massachusetts, Massachusetts, show off. So you can say a state, so what? Massachusetts, right? All right. So, um, it's popularly believed that thousands were killed in the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts. (laughs) All right. In reality, historians tell us that there were actually less than 25. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying it was just 25. Every life taken in the name of Christ that shouldn't have been is awful and a horrible offense to God and in the record of the church. And yet in reality, it wasn't thousands, it was 25, 19, or less than 25. 19 were sentenced to death and a few others died in captivity. Now this is hard to talk about, but most famously, um, the, the Catholic Church has been embroiled in scandals involving child abuse by priests and then subsequent cover-ups by the church. But we need, to, we need to own and recognize that the Protestant church is not guiltless in this regard either, is it? In fact, it seems that wherever, whether it's kids' sports coaches or kids' sports team doctors or teachers or Boy Scout leaders, these atrocities shouldn't exist anywhere, but it appears like they exist everywhere. Because I think King David was right. Sins in our blood. In other words, these heinous sins don't just exist inside the church or outside the church. They're not just religious issues or irreligious issues. They show no prejudice and show up in every sphere of human society. Here's what we need to say first about systemic injustice. It's flat out not true to the way of Jesus who died as a victim of injustice and called for the forgiveness of his enemies. If it don't look like Jesus, it doesn't represent Jesus. Christianity says this, whether you commit injustices in the name of Christianity or not, whenever someone acts contrary to the ways of Christ, it is not Christ and Christianity they are representing, but the greatest problem of humanity the sin that dwells within all of us. So that's the first thing, injustice. David sinned, we all have. Second, let's talk about justice. Let's pick up the text and look again on the fact that David was held accountable. So when David heard Nathan's story, he's outraged and he kind of cries out, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this wrong and because he had no pity. David was outraged and he should have been. This injustice should come because what happened in the story told by Nathan was unjust. So outraged David was That sounds very Yoda. So outraged he was. (laughs) So outraged he was. (laughs) He He pronounced a death sentence on the rich man. He pronounces a death sentence on the rich man. That man deserves to die. 
This injustice should be made right. The Apostle Paul said the exact same thing in Romans 6. Sin is serious and the wages of sin are death. We all want justice, don't we? Anybody here watch movies? All right. Seeing if you're awake. Three of you do. The rest of you are Netflix addicts who don't even want to admit it. You're very in on movies. When there's an injustice that happens in the film, there's something that cries out in you for justice, right? Where does that come from? Naturalism? We all want justice. Except when it comes to ourselves, then we want grace. David had a genuine concern for justice. Legit, if you look at the life of David, he had concern for justice and he loved God. He had a genuine concern for justice except when he was blinded by his own unjust passions and then he compromised. See, in the eye of the beholder, we rationalize our sin, but here's the reality that the scriptures tell us. There is one who judges justly. Even great King David of God's chosen people, the man after God's own heart, who shows up at his door? A prophet of God who calls David to account for the injustice. This is who God is. God is justice. He is just. That's why when Jesus was killed unjustly, forgiving his sins, Peter tells us how he could do that in 1 Peter 2 when he says, when he was reviled about Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in this settled knowledge, knew that there is a good God who judges justly. All injustices will be dealt with because there is a good God who is just, meaning all injustices and all people who commit injustices will be held to account. In the new year, we're going to look at the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. We're going to look at those a number of times. Jesus is calling them to account, telling them, wake up from your slumber because you're going to be held accountable for how you're acting as a church. Churches will be judged. History books and what happened in Christendom People will be judged for those things, and you and I, for our sin, will be judged. The hammer will come down on you and me. The hammer will come down on injustice. Here's the question. Are you relying on yourself? Are you excusing your sin away? Are you blaming others for it? The hammer will come down on your injustice because there is a good, just God, or The hammer came down on Jesus so that justice could be had at the cross, but you could be forgiven by grace. But justice will be had. David is called to account. The first thing we said about this topic is yes, yes. Injustices have been done throughout history in the name of Christianity. Here's the second thing we need to say. Not everything you read is true. I, I spoke to it a little bit, just trying to talk about some numbers and stuff like that. But let's look a little bit at uh, Christopher Hitchens. In his book, God is Not Great, Christopher Hitchens contended that religion poisons everything. 
and that violence and hatred in the world arise almost exclusively from religion. I mean, this is what's underneath the question. Don't all the injustices in the world discredit Christianity? Man, look at your history, church. I I can't believe anything where those things happen. What's the notion underneath that? Get rid of religion and that's our ticket to a utopian world. Because Christopher Hitchens is saying religion poisons everything and that violence and hatred in the world arise almost exclusively from religion. So his solution to the point of religion is atheism. He presents atheism as the solution to religion or, or, or faith. Here's the problem. The most violent dehumanizing regimes in history have taken place in the last 100 years and have been atheistic, not religious. Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, Rouge in Cambodia, and Hitler in Germany, they were driven by Marxist, communist, atheistic philosophies, a rejection of God at the very center of their system. So in the last hundred years, Rouge killed his two million, Hitler killed his six million, Stalin killed his 20 million, and Mao killed his estimated 50 to 70 million. I'm not trying to whitewash anything here, but over a period of 500 years, typically that you know, include the Crusades, the witch trials, the Inquisition, that, this 500-year period there, so-called Christians killed what historians would say is when you add up the numbers in these different areas, 200 to 250,000 people, most of those being in geopolitical warfare like the Crusades. In the last 100 years alone, atheistic regimes have killed 80 to 100 million people. So I want you to hear me. I'm saying, when, when, when you look at our history, I'm saying, yes, there are injustices that have, in, that have been done that look nothing like Christ, nothing like the ways of Jesus. But I also want you to look at the alternative argument that's saying we need to get rid of religion because then there will be utopia and see the carnage, the wreckage in the last 100 years alone proves this is not true. Mark Clark, pastor friend of ours from down the road, wrote in his book, The Problem of God, history has proven, history has proven that adopting a philosophy wherein the answer to violence and oppression is less religion is a failure. It's a failure. It's not intellectually honest. Here's the third thing we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about response. We've talked about injustice. We're talking in we're talking justice, now I want to talk about response, where David repented. I talked about the judgment, the hammer. God is just, he will judge. Will you turn to him in repentance or will you not? David turned to God in repentance. He was called on his sin. Nathan the prophet called him out and he repented. We see further down in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13 where David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He goes on in Psalm 51 to pen Uh, From his heart, this posture of repentance, meaning there is sin in me. I want to lay, I, I want to depend on God. I need to seek his grace. I need to seek his forgiveness. And I want to turn from these things and live a righteous, holy life. In Psalm 51, 4, David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. To many people, this is a really confusing verse, isn't it? You only, against God only has he sinned. He committed adultery with Bathsheba at best, rape at worst, and murdered a man. Against God only has he sinned, right? It seems 
seems horrible to even state that. One commentator clarifies what David is getting at this way. With all the collateral damage to so many lives, how can David say this? The simple answer is that before lifting a hand against a fellow human being, we first shake our fist in God's face. If love of God precedes and enables love of neighbor, defiance of God precedes and enables abuse of neighbor. So so David realized God was the most significant one he defended, and it started with God. It started with a heart posture that got tired of God. David was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God's. So those who commit injustices in Jesus' name, they don't do so because they're too committed to Jesus. They don't do so because they're too committed to Jesus. It's because they're not committed enough to Jesus. They're not Christian enough. They don't believe the gospel enough, and that's why they commit these injustices. In other words, the injustices done throughout history in the name of Christianity were instances when individuals and institutions were not behaving Christianly. How do we know that? How do we know they weren't behaving Christianly? By what standard do we hold them to? Here's the reality. The shortcomings of the church are only even understood historically as such because of Christianity's own resources. Where's the standard by which the church is held in history? By its own, by its own resources. See, the West, the Western world, got the list of virtues it expects of the church from within the Christian faith itself. We understand injustices in church history as exactly that, precisely because we critique them as imperfect adoption and practice of the principles of the Christian gospel. Critics of Christianity are not relying on their own resources, but on ours to denounce us. And while they should do that, and we need to own it because we believe the scriptures, it's inconsistent for them because they're not holding us to account by their own standards. Where does Darwinism, naturalism, where do, where do these things end? Well, just, just in one example is this idea of the survival of the fittest. That, that's why these regimes were able to plow over people. Who were the six million that Hitler killed? They were Jews who he thought were lesser than. They were homosexuals in his own country. They were the disabled in his own country, and they were anybody who opposed his regime. They were not considered to have this full dignity. That's where naturalism gets you. That's where these atheistic worldviews go. But we're held to account actually not by those, but by the Christian worldview and what the scriptures say. And we say, yes, we should be, but it's inconsistent for you to hold us to them because your beliefs don't actually land us there. And I also want to say this to round out the conversation. It's the same Bible and gospel principles that not only give an unflinching critique of injustices in church history, but have spawned the great categories of human flourishing in history and today that are often ignored or taken for granted in society, which is, this is sort of the final thing I want to say. I read a great book this summer by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. In it, at one point, she wrote this, Christians were the first to found hospitals and 
for all their moral failures, have done more in global terms to alleviate suffering than any other movement. This is a fascinating reality. It's not fiction. It's a fascinating reality. Remember when I talked about the fact that thousands of planes take off and land every day? We don't hear about them. We hear about the plane crashes. We hear about those few. And we talked about the few plane crashes in, in church history, right? I want to spend our last few minutes talking about the thousands of flights that take off and land every day that often people don't think about or acknowledge. And they come from the Christian tradition. Here's the first, the sanctity of human life. It was Christianity that elevated the sanctity of human life. In ancient Rome, Greece, and other societies, human life was cheap and it was expendable. Christians came along and they opposed gladiator contests because they thought that even those gladiators were worthy of dignity. These were widely practiced in the Roman era. Christians came along and said, that is wrong. They opposed um, the early church, motivated by the gospel, opposed abortion, infanticide, and abandonment. To this day, infanticide and child abandonment are still illegal in most Western countries. When it comes to hospitals, Christianity introduced them to the world in the fourth century, motivated by Jesus' words, I was sick and you cared for me. That's why we have hospitals on the earth. Christians started those. When it comes to women's rights, prior to Christianity, women were practically slaves, having little or no freedom and dignity. In the church, women were baptized and taught and served and participated and led, served communion right alongside men. Adultery was no longer blamed on the woman, but a man who committed adultery was guilty as well. It was Christianity that permitted a woman to reject a male suitor. Many of you ladies are grateful for that movement in church history. Christianity was the one that permitted a woman to reject a male suitor, praise God, and inherit property as well. It was Christianity driven by equality, driven by women's rights that said, this is wrong and needs to be corrected. In regard to the abolition of slavery, slavery in some form was virtually universal in every human culture over centuries. It was Christians who first came to the conclusion that it was wrong, and it was Christians who began to work for abolition because they saw it as violating the will of God, the image-bearing of God that's in every human being. William Wilberforce in Great Britain and John Woolman in the U.S., among many others, devoted their entire lives to ending slavery in Jesus' name. In regards to liberty and justice, the civil rights movement's most famous activist was a preacher of the gospel named Martin Luther King Jr. And he, he's considered by many to be the greatest champion of justice in our era. And he knew the antidote to racism wasn't less Christianity, but a deeper and truer Christianity. He called the church and he called the society to actually believe God about humanity. That was his impetus. That was his motivator. In terms of education, universities grew out of the church's medieval monasteries. That's why they exist. Oxford and Cambridge in the UK and Harvard, Yale and Princeton in the US all began as seminaries or were founded by Christian leaders. It's because of the belief in the dignity and worth of all human beings that Christians have advocated for all children around the globe to receive an education. 
historically and today. It's inconsistent with naturalism. It's inconsistent with the survival of the fittest. Why would we go to the poorest kids in the world and say, you deserve an education? It's Christians who are trying to convince the world and are going about doing it, giving an education to everyone. It's Christians and it's Oprah. We're doing this. (laughs) Science, when it comes to science... When it comes to science, uh, I was so helped by Paul Chamberlain's message, and I believe at one point he quoted John Lennox. I've been reading a book by John Lennox lately that I love. It's called Can Science Explain Everything? John Lennox was a professor of mathematics and philosophy of science in Oxford. I want to read you an excerpt from his book. By a curious train of events, I found myself on a rickety Russian plane landing at the city of, oh man, I should have practiced this, uh, of Novosibirsk, nailed it, Siberia, to spend a month lecturing and researching at the university there. However backward the technological infrastructure was in those days of communist rule, some of Russia's mathematicians were world leaders. And it was a privilege to meet with them and spend time with the faculty and students. But they were utterly perplexed by one thing, that I believed in God. I was eventually invited by the rector of the university to explain in the lecture why I, as a mathematician, believed in God. Apparently, it was the first lecture of this kind of issue to be held there in 75 years. The auditorium was full to capacity with many professors as well as students. In my presentation, among other things, I spoke about the history of modern science and related how its great pioneers, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, and Clerk Maxwell, were all firm and convinced believers in God. When I said this, I detected anger in the audience, and not liking people being angry in my lectures, I paused to think, or paused to ask them why they were so annoyed. A professor in the front row said, we are angry because this is the first time we have heard that these famous scientists on whose shoulders we stand were believers in God. Why were we never told this? Is it not obvious, I replied? This historical fact did not fit with the scientific atheism that you were taught. I went on to point out that the connection between the biblical worldview and the rise of modern science was well recognized. C.S. Lewis sums it up well when he says, men became scientists because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a grand legislator. Historian Peter Harrison reaches the same basic conclusion. Far from hindering the rise of modern science, faith in God was one of the motors that drove it. Lennox concludes, I therefore regard it as a privilege and an honor, not an embarrassment, to be both a scientist and a Christian. See, modern science came to be out of a belief that an intelligent designer's handiwork was there waiting to be explored. It's frankly a a, a modern fallacy. It's a myth to claim that faith and science can't coexist. Scientists stand on the shoulders of Christians where all of their work really is on their shoulders in the first place. When it comes to music and music, Catholic monks developed the first forms of modern Western musical notation in order to standardize liturgy throughout the worldwide church which led directly to the development of European classical music and all the forms that descended from it. This sacred music has a prominent place in culture, right? Beethoven, Beethoven, Mozart, Schubert, and Vivaldi, right? Does music ever stir your soul? Is it a common good? Is it a common grace from God that lifts your spirits and speaks to your soul? 
There's a rich history of, of music in the Protestant, Protestant tradition as well. Martin Luther, Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, and many others composed well-known church hymns and art that have been strongly inspired by Protestant beliefs. Several historians credit the Catholic Church for what they consider to be the brilliance and magnificence of Western art in, in, in paintings, in, in um, statues, and in architecture, and all those kinds of things. And during the Renaissance, artists produced many of the unsurpassed masterpieces of Western art, often inspired by biblical themes. It, were, it, were, it really was, it was these Christians exploring the beauty and wonder of God and his creation that began to compose music that had never existed before, and art like it had never appeared before. It stemmed from belief in Jesus. I, I need you to know I generally have very little good to say about Abbotsford. Are you, are you with me? No. But I, got, I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, Abbotsford's known as the buckle of the Bible belt, you know, here in Canada, and, and really Chilliwack is, is very similar. Um, but in the Abbey News recently, this was written uh, about the buckle of the Bible Belt. Abbotsford continues to have the most generous charitable donors in Canada, according to new data from Statistics Canada. Local residents gave $85 million to charity in 2015, and the $720 median gift among those who donated was far and away the highest in Canada. That figure is nearly $300 higher than the next closest census metropolitan area. It's the 14th consecutive year Abbotsford had the highest median donation. It's not a coincidence that the buckle of the Bible Belt is also the most generous place in Canada. By far, almost double I don't know what Chilliwack's up to, but double what Abbotsford, like, right, double anyone else, the next closest almost in all of Canada. See, there is this reality, this reality. It, it, is there wrongdoing in the history of the church? You bet there is. But is there also something about the Christian faith that permeates the world with beauty and charity and generosity and love? You have to look at the facts and see that there has never been a movement like Christianity. Andrew Wilson, a British pastor and author, had a little campfire one night in his backyard with his family and they were roasting marshmallows. And as he stared into the fire, the thought that came to his mind is, I can't believe we burned people in this. Like, I can't believe we put people in fire and burned them at the stake. He was thinking about the history of the church. And he was wrestling with this and he, he wrote about it and he kind of wrestled it through. And I just absolutely love the way he concluded what he wrote. He wrote, our low points expose the fallibility of our heroes and prompt us to thank God that he built and continues to build his church through broken people. At one level, the fact that Bernard of Clairvaux preached the second crusade and Jonathan Edwards owned slaves and Martin Luther denigrated Jews undermines the gospel they preached so eloquently. At another level, it vindicates it. All at once, they were princes and paupers, priests and beggars, sinners and saints, and so are we. An honest reading of church history also makes the Bible's history far more applicable. There is no hint of a whitewash of Israel in Genesis or Judges, 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles. The story of the early church is full of great achievements alongside rifts, squabbles, betrayals, and disappointments. Scripture paints God's people as a mighty yet flawed community anointed by God, yet afflicted by sin. When we find that our ancestors in church history have been similar, it shouldn't surprise us. Where have we been this morning? We, we, we've tried to take an honest look at our history 
and say yes to it. We've tried to get our facts straight a little bit and, and did some work there. We've looked at the alternative of, this, that, 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 of atheism, and, and, and it's, we've seen that it's been found wanting. And then we've looked at the transcendent wake of good, the thousands of planes taking off and landing in the world daily, which frankly far outweigh the tragic crashes. I want to conclude with this. Hold the church and the world accountable to the standard of the Bible. Do that. And when it fails you, when the church fails you, when the world fails you, hold out the Jesus revealed in the Bible. And when you fail in your life, when you fail the church, when you fail the world, when you fail to meet God's standards in the Bible, know this, the Jesus revealed in the Bible is held out for you to receive his grace with faith. Would you do that? Let's pray. Jesus, we all need your grace. We all need your grace. And, and we, we um, if it hasn't been clear already, Lord, we acknowledge the injustices done in Jesus' name. They have not represented your son, God. They've done quite the opposite, and we repent. We truly repent. And we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace or we're thrown, we're thrust right into the mix and we repent. We repent. And Jesus too, we also acknowledge that you are doing things in this world, things through your church that are stunningly beautiful, little hints, little visibilities, things often unnoticed, things we take for granted as societies that really are the fingerprint of your son, Jesus. God, would we contribute to the good of culture? And Jesus, would, you hold, would we hold out your, would you hold you out to the world that they might receive you in faith? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.